We're about to inspire you with the stories of real people. Welcome to A Current Life with your host, Jimmy Gould. In the next hour, you will meet one of the most interesting and successful people in the world. Listen as Jimmy gets their real story of success, both the highs and the lows. We hope that you take with you some of the ideas we will share today and embrace your own journey. Now, here's Jimmy. Welcome to another edition of A Current Life. I'm your host, Jimmy Gould, and I'm very excited and honored to introduce to you my very special guest this week, Marlo Thomas. Marlo, welcome to A Current Life. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, I I've heard a lot about you from our mutual friend, Maxine Clark. Yes, well, uh, I have wanted you on the show since we started this uh, a number of months ago, and um, the show goes into about 187 countries, and wow. I've followed your career forever, and Maxine uh, really has been the glue that got us together. So I, I know, to thank she's you. a wonderful woman. Uh, I do appreciate you particularly at this time because you're starring on Broadway on, in Relatively Speaking, and yes. I know you have a show tonight. Right. So this is kind of the show about the journey of life and the ups and downs as we go through it and get wherever we're supposed to get to what we term success. And 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 we've had some great guests on the show over the last two months, from Leslie Stahl to Bob Costas to Nicholas Sparks, and I very much wanted to to interview you. So let me give the listeners, for those few people who may not know, uh, a little bit about you. You're, you're an actress, producer, author, and social activist. You're also the spokesperson and national outreach director for St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital. You've won four Emmys. You've been nominated nine times. You've received the Golden Globe, the George Foster Peabody Award, the Grammy, the Helen Caldicott Award for Nuclear Disarmament, the Thomas Paine Award from the ACLU, the American Women in Radio and Television Satellite Award, and you've been inducted into the Broadcasting and Cable Hall of Fame. I could actually go on for probably the better part of the hour talking about your incredible career and, more importantly, uh, what you've brought, and at least uh, from having read everything about you and your books and everything, to the lives of very many people, particularly children throughout the world, and, and I want to thank you for that. Well, thank you very much. My good, I can't wait to hear what I have to say after that interview. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'm going to start with the early years. And uh, as I read through, uh, particularly growing up, uh, laughing, which is your memoir, and yes. I, I loved it. And thank you. I loved it because you are an incredibly honest and direct, and and you you are a great storyteller, and you told your story by also interviewing some of the great comedians of our time and talking about the past experiences you went through with some of the, as you call them, the boys that were your father's yeah, friends. Yeah, that's right, right. So what was it like uh, growing up in the village, which you call Beverly Hills? Well, you know, I didn't realize till I, I grew up that it was different than anybody else's neighborhood, as I told you in my book, that, you know, we had our our share of, of happy families, which we were certainly one of them, and we had a very funny, happy home, uh, lots of comedians, lots of laughter. Uh, we also had the Bing Crosby family, where their mother was an alcoholic, and Bing was uh, very uh, abusive with his kids, so there was that household. And uh, so there was all the different kinds of households that you have in any neighborhood. And uh, so it didn't feel, uh, you know, and, and a lot of people were famous, but who knew that that wasn't what everybody had, you know? People always say to me, what was it like to be Danny Thomas's daughter? And I always say, I don't know. I was never anybody else's daughter. So it just, it seemed like that's what life was. Thank God I had a very loving mother and father. I mean, 
I don't think uh, a lot of kids that grew up in Beverly Hills had parents that were so devoted to the ch- their children and their family life. And that's why a lot of them, you know, got into drugs and did have kind of unhappy lives. But my parents came from, my dad from Toledo, my mom from Detroit, and they really brought a middle-class work ethic and a middle-class family ethic to this very opulent neighborhood called Beverly Hills. And I think that's why uh, my sister and brother and I are as normal as we are. <laughs> well, it sounded even, you know, as I was reading it, I mean, even when you would have funny moments or, or, or moments that all of us have, because it seemed like you were a bit mischievous when you were, when you were little, I, I, I enjoyed the story with uh, the mother and the, uh, the, the nun in the Catholic oh, the school. the nun, right, yeah, yeah. And I read that, and I loved how your father got you out of that particular thing. And then, of course, when you got in the car, you know, he's really furious at you, but right. everything always turned into laughter in your right, family. Right, exactly. It just—it was the way he was. He always found the funny in things. I—I I don't know. I don't think I wrote this in the book, but when I was a little girl, I remember falling down and hurting my knee, and there was blood coming down my leg, and I was crying. And Daddy said, "Don't cry, honey. It could be a lot worse." I said, "How could it be a lot worse?" And he said, "It could have happened to me." You know. <laughs> You know, that's just so funny that you can't keep crying when somebody makes you laugh like that. And I still remember that to this day, you know. And because and for, for years we joked about anything that happened, we'd say, well, it could have been worse, it could have happened to me. So that kind of sense of humor and, and getting, you know, and using that kind of, you know, it made you laugh when you're a grown man. Well, as a little girl, it made me laugh. And he used kind of grown-up humor with his children, and he gave not only gave us a sense of humor, but he gave us a sense of humor about what was happening to us. So it was so things weren't taken catastrophically, you know. But it seemed like you had a normal life, even if he was on the road all the time. And I know uh, you said that you were able to get out of school on Mondays and Fridays, so you could travel with your father. And it, it just it just really showed that you wanted, and he wanted, and your mom wanted normalcy, you know, yeah. in growing up, even though. You had people sitting at the dinner table that are legends. I mean, I, right. when I was—I uh, took my high school senior trip with two of my friends, and one of the highlights of it, we, we were invited to spend a lot of time with Jerry Lewis, and oh, we drove out to California. We st- we stayed with him, and we were with him, and we went to his show as a special guest. And here we are, seventeen, eighteen years of age, and. You know, he had this unbelievably funny side, and he also had this very dark side. Yeah. And, and it was incredible. And, and here you were every night or every week with people like that at the dinner yeah. table. Yes. I must say, though, um, they, they weren't very dark. Um, I know that people have said that about Jerry Lewis, and I don't really know Jerry Lewis. I've met him, but I don't know him. But George Burns is not a dark guy. He was a very right. funny, sweet man. I never saw <clears throat> anything very, you know, sh- uh, dark or depressed about him. My dad was not a depressed guy. My father was a complete optimist. He would never have been able to build St. Jude Children's Research Hospital if he wasn't an optimist. Were they so, shy? Uh, <clears throat> excuse me? Were they shy? Were they... No, because... they, were, they, were like, they were like guys if they were your father. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? They were like regular guys. They'd sit down, they'd have a cigar, they'd make some jokes, they'd go play golf. It wasn't it wasn't like high-powered people. It was like people who just liked to laugh. You know, they could have been insurance salesmen. They just liked to laugh. They'd tell jokes. They'd make fun of things. And, uh, and they'd go play golf or they'd play cards. But they were a mild-mannered group of people. They were not uh, 
hyper at all. Not hyper at all. Milton Berle was a little bit hyper, but not the other guys. Not Sid Caesar, not George, not Bob Hope, not my dad. They were not hyper people. And you were completely comfortable. I know during one of the filmings of, of Make Room for <clears throat> Daddy, I think you were, I forget how old, eight years old or whatever, and you would sit on the, the lap of the director. And, yes. and And I really got a kick out of that in the book. I mean, what I loved about the book, and anybody who has <laughs> not read it, it's called Growing uh, Growing Up Laughing, My Story by Marlo Thomas, and it's your memoirs, and I recommend it that everybody should read Thank it. You. Because Thank it, you. Because it, it's, a, it's a terrific read, and it's a terrific story really about um, so many things in particular as we'll talk in, later on in, in the show about we all forget how important laughter is in our society and if we had as you said in the book children laugh 75 times a day and adults 12 times a day right. and boy could we could use a lot more laughter in our lives today absolutely we? absolutely because if everything is a catastrophe if everything is about oh god what's going to happen tomorrow you know my or what, what happened yesterday is still on me. You know, I remember my dad one time, uh, he had such an optimistic point of view. And, uh, there was this man who had not been very nice to my dad in business. And, and my, and he came back into my father's life and wanted something else. And I said to my dad, I was about, I don't know, 13 years old. And I said, Daddy, how can you be nice to that man? He wasn't nice to you. I, I just can't believe you're friends with him again. And he said, I do not hunch my back with yesterday. That's a great thing That's to say. Phenomenal. And he I've never forgotten. Always forward and looked at the bright side of everything. Yeah, I do not hunch my back with yesterday. I mean, so many of us can't help but carry yesterday's problems, yesterday's grudges, yesterday's things, you know, mishaps, and be embarrassed about them. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. Why did that person do that to me? All that stuff. Our our lives are cluttered with that kind of thing. But don't you don't you think we carry that from our childhood? And if we had the type of childhood that was happy, some of us can can lose that, or we can learn to outgrow that. But a lot of us are shaped by what we went through. Oh as yeah, children. well we're all definitely shaped by what we went through. You know, and I, you know, even though I had a wonderful childhood, I mean, I was a lonely kid. My dad was on the road. My mother was on the road. We all have that. Uh, you know, you, everybody brings with them the things that were not so hot about their childhood. So even though my mom made sure that we were, we got a four-day weekend so we could be with my father, my mom and dad were not there often, you know, or there'd be a father-daughter day at school, and I wouldn't have a dad, you know. So um, there, there's there's always, you know, there's a sad side as well as the funny side. And and um, every every kid, grow, nobody grows up with a perfect childhood. But if you have a lot of love in your life, which we had, and a lot of attention. When my father was away, he called us every night. And every night, he, I think I talked about this in the book, that he would call a different kid and make it person to person to that child so that everybody felt, you know, that they got their own personal phone call. Everybody else, all the other, you know, we all got on the phone and talked, but it was made for one child. Person to person to Miss Margaret Thomas, you know, was very exciting to be the recipient of that call. That That kind of knowing how to make your kids feel better, you know, uh, um, and, and make it joyous um, was a big thing. And also how, to know that we were on his mind. How did you get Marlo out of Margot? Well, my name was Margaret, and my parents nicknamed me Margot, and I couldn't pronounce Margot. And it <laughs> came out Marlo. So and, Marlo. And I never could shake it. I tried to call myself Margie and Maggie, and uh, Marlo just, stuck i finally stopped fighting it It was because uh, it always felt to me like a baby name it was like you were calling me wawa you know i mean i just <laughs> it felt like a baby name but uh, 
it, it stuck. Well, you know, I did some research, and I found a quote of yours that said, my father said there were two kinds of people in the world, givers and takers. The takers may eat better, but the givers sleep better. Yeah, that's uh, true. That, that's incredible true. quote. It's a wonderful quote. And he was certainly a, a giver. And I think um, he also said something another time. Uh, he said, uh, there are two kinds of people in the world, those who stop at a traffic accident to see if they can help, and those who just drive by. Hmm. And he didn't just make that up because I was in the car with him many times where there would be a traffic accident and he would jump out of the car. He would go find a phone booth. This is before cell phones. He would run up and down the street with his change falling out of his pocket looking for a phone booth to call a policeman or call an ambulance. He very much saw himself as a part of a community, a part of a neighborhood. The neighborhood just happened to be the whole country, but that's how he saw himself. So he was a, a man who felt very connected to other people. He was not an isolated kind of personality. And I think that's why he built St. Jude. And that's what that, Not why he built it, but how he fit so comfortably into that role, because he, in fact, was a person who saw himself as part of the whole community. Well, we're going to uh, take a short break. In fact, we're not going to take many breaks because we're so honored to have you on the show. We've gotten Thank our you. sponsors to I'm gonna, understand that, that. That would be great because I'm having a little cough, so I'm going to take a little water. I'll be right back no on No problem. Uh, we're, we're with Marla Thomas. Uh, please stay tuned. We'll be back to you in a minute. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you an entrepreneur that wants to achieve more, not just in it for profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways? Listen for Be More, Achieve More, Inspiration for the Entrepreneurial Mind. With host Chris Cooper, you'll hear from successful achievers from around the world with the passion and experience to offer invaluable guidance. These people are making a difference and will help give you the motivation and insight to achieve more. Be More, Achieve More can be heard live Fridays at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. How has your belief system been formed? Has it been based on others telling you what to believe? Do you desire to make changes in your life that you know will bring you deeper fulfillment? Tune in to The Ripple Effect with Katherine Cloward for your weekly dose of inspiration and encouragement. Whether it be in your business, personal relationships, or family life, this show will help you recognize and trust your intuitive knowing. Catherine and her guests will help inspire you to make fulfilling choices for your life. The Ripple Effect is heard live every Thursday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to A Current Life with Jimmy Gould. If you have a question or comment for Jimmy or his guest today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd like to send an email, the address is acurrentlife at yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to A Current Life. This is your host, Jimmy Gould, and today I have a very special guest here with me. Uh, Marlo Thomas. Uh, 
Hello. We have, uh, yes, hi. The, uh, Sorry, I just had a coughing fit. So. We're back from our break, and we've had a good opportunity to learn a little bit about your early years. I want to talk a little bit about uh, you attended the University of Southern California, and you graduated with a teaching degree. Yes. Um, and you state in your book that you felt that you needed to get a degree because it was important to have a paper or a piece of paper. Stated well, it wasn't important qualified. to me. It was important to my father. <laughs> okay. I was ready to quit college after two years. I was bored. <laughs> I wanted to be an actress. He wanted each of us to get a piece of paper that said we were qualified to do something in the world. And he said, you know, and I was getting Best Actress Awards in school, and he said, so everybody, every school has got a Best Actress, Best Actress Award. That doesn't make you qualified to become an actress. You have to get something that says you can do something in the world. And, uh, you know, my father was the uh, first generation of immigrant parents. He didn't finish high school. His parents didn't read and write English, so to him, an education was everything. And so he wanted to be sure that, you know, what he said, I, what do you think I'm working for? I'm working for you to have a better life. And, and, and he said to me one day, he said, why do you want to be an actress? You're smart. You could be a governor. What do you want to be an actress for? Um, and I said, well, it's what I love. It's, it's kind of what you weaned me on, Dad. It isn't like, you know, you weren't taking me to the to the House of Congress. You were taking me to the studio. It's sort of what I've grown up with and what I love, and I'm good at it. And he admitted that. I mean, he when he came to see me in plays, he said, him, you got it, kid. You, you, you used to say, you got the foo-foo dust. The foo-foo dust to him was that magic thing that people have that you can't train for, you can't buy it, you just either have it or you don't have it. And it's, oh. I think it's some kind of God-given thing. I don't even know. He called it foo-foo dust, whatever that means. Well, when you went in the 1960s, you then produced and starred in That Girl, yes. uh, which, which, by the way, I was a big fan of. And it yes, seemed like you. you were at the height of the career, and then you, you, you continued to, to do movies and Broadway plays and write books and various other things. He had to be very proud of you, and I know oh, there he was, was one... One chapter in particular that you call the bow when when he recognizes you at the sands, which oh, right. brought back a lot of memories because my father was a lawyer and he one of his clients was Jack Introtter at the sands. Oh, really? It's small yeah. world, but uh, how did that make you feel when you were in the audience and he recognized you? Oh, it, it was beautiful. I mean, it was a as I say in the book, it was just a powerful moment for both of us as a as a little girl who always wanted to be an actress and. A, and for the dad who didn't want his little girl to grow up to be a big girl who was an actress, uh, because he was afraid I would fail and I would be unhappy and that maybe the, maybe, uh, the lightning wouldn't strike twice in the same family. That moment was important to both of us because I'd always been in his audiences when he would introduce a star in the audience, whether it be Bob Hope or Dinah Shore or whoever, Sammy Davis. He'd always say, Ladies and gentlemen, we have a star in the audience tonight, Mr. Sammy Davis. And he'd get up and everybody would clap. And that night he said, ladies and gentlemen, we have a star in the audience, Miss Marlowe Thomas. And I tell you, it still makes me cry to think of it. It was a lovely, lovely moment. And if you look closely at that picture, there are tears in my eyes. Mm-hmm. It was, it mm-hmm. was a very uh, meaningful moment. It wasn't that he recognized me as a star. It was that he, that he was acknowledging you know, my accomplishment in a way that I'd watched him acknowledge so many people so many years well i think it it truly speaks to what all children particularly want from their parents no matter whether they say they do or they don't they want they want them to feel you know good about what they're doing and and you know i 
uh, I go through that probably pretty much on a daily basis with my sons. And, uh, you know, sometimes they'll talk to me and sometimes they won't. But, but I, I oftentimes uh, there'll be a minute when he'll say, how did I do in the basketball game? You know, and, yes. and I'll say, you just worked hard. Just keep putting one step in front of the right, other. Exactly. But right, exactly. I, I felt that moment in your book. I felt what you must have been going through and what he must yes. have been feeling. Um, right. Let me let me ask you, because we have some people in common, like Maxine Clark and and others, and you refer to Gloria Steinem in your book and other people, and that you've, you know, you, you're a very strong woman, and, and you're a tr- an incredible true advocate for women. And, and have you always been that way? Um, is that something that just was part of you, or did you, did some, you know, did things occur in your life that just made you feel you know, that that was something that that you were going to become. Because I've always felt in business, and we've backed a lot of businesses around around the world, uh, that, look, I think we should have a woman president, and I actually feel strongly about that. I also feel that we should have, you know, a lot of – it took a long time for the advocacy of of a lot of people, particularly women, to to take their role in in our society. And you've really stood out front, as have people like Maxine Clark and other people like that. Well, I think all of us, anybody who's an activist, if you scratch them a little bit, below the surface, you'll find a personal reason. Um, My dad's personal reason for wanting to build a hospital that would give every child an equal chance at health care and at good health care is because he grew up in a neighborhood where nobody had any health care, where kids didn't go to a doctor, where kids died of rodent bites and influenzas. I mean, that's where that passion came from. For me, with, uh, with the women's uh, movement, you know, I grew up with, uh, witnessing 15 marriages, 15 um, uh, Mideastern and Italian marriages. My father was one of nine boys and a girl. All those nine boys married and dominated their wives and really kept their wives down. They suppressed their wives, and I saw it. In fact, I was just talking to a friend of mine the other day. I had an Aunt B and an Uncle Bill. My Uncle Bill was a very powerful man, my father's older brother. And his wife was very sweet. They used to call her a saint, a very, very sweet woman. And he dominated her something terrible. He would tell her to keep quiet. He would ask her, what do you think you know? All that kind of, I saw a lot of that as a young girl. And I think it, it got into my brain that um, you have to stand up for yourself as a woman. Maybe marriage is not a good idea for women. You know, don't get married until you really establish yourself and you have your own money and your own say. I mean, I really saw early that rom- marriage was not just this romantic little place with a white picket fence, that you really had to own yourself before you even got anywhere near the word marriage. So I had decided oh, I don't know, somewhere in my teens, I wasn't going to get married. And I and I had, was going to be an actress and be free to travel where I wanted to. And uh, uh, I had a, my mother had a friend whose husband had a, she was an actress, and he had a map with a 50-mile radius, and she could not take a job outside of the 50-mile radius. Wow. Now, when you, when you hear something like that as a kid, you don't ever forget it. You don't ever forget that kind of sort of jailer, uh, you know, philosophy. So I, uh, I once said in an article that I thought being married was like living with a jailer. You have to please. <laughs> <laughs> You're probably yeah. not alone in that feeling. So, <laughs> so that, there you are. So, you know, I, I, I think I call my one, the chapter in my book, Growing a Feminist. I, I, uh-huh, I, they bred a feminist. The, the, all those families. My mother was one of five children, five Italians. 
and they all had those same marriages. I must say of all of them, my dad was a better partner than his his brothers were for just reason of his own his own kindness and goodness. But um, well, well, your mother played drums, right? So I no, mean, my grandma you know, played drums. My mother was a singer anyway. Yeah, my mother was a singer, but my mother did give up her radio show that my father was on the the announcer of to mm-hmm. follow my father and have him have his career, which is what women did in those days. And she talked a lot about that growing up with us, not in a nasty way, not in, oh, I sacrificed everything way, but she would say she missed her singing, you know, uh, she really loved her singing. She always sang at every party we ever had. It didn't matter who was at our house. If Frank Sinatra was singing, my mother had no problem following Frank Sinatra. She just loved to sing. If there was an open microphone, she would sing. So that love of singing, that love of music, was something that was filled our house, but it was something that she missed. And I always felt that my mother gave all of her life to her family, and we really could have done it on half. We didn't need her to give up her whole life. Do you feel we've come a long way in making changes? Oh, absolutely. I mean, my, my nieces now, they're all working women, married, with children. They didn't feel they had to make any, uh, you know, sacrifice or compromise. You know, they're doing it all. It's difficult, God knows, but they're doing it. Their husbands, you know, they're in their 30s, so their husbands were raised by women like me. And those women said to them, you do the dishes and you take care of the baby too, and blah, blah, blah. So they've learned a different, they have learned a different philosophy. There's still a lot of work to be done around the world, obviously. Oh, but, yes, yes, there is. Yeah. And, and, and my God, in so many countries where women yeah. are not allowed to get education, the women are covering their faces. I mean, you know, it's, it's pretty, pretty terrible in many places. Well, you, 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 you obviously, uh, I don't know the exact year, but you created and produced and co-hosted a television special, Free to Be, You and Me, and Free to Be a Family, during a time when really it was not popular to discuss gender. Right. quality, and you received a very large number of very big awards, and you know also the proceeds of which went to the Ms. Foundation for Women and Children, right. uh, which you're the founding director of. Well, what year one was of the, that? One, one of the founding directors, yeah. One of the founding directors, yeah. right. Was that early on, and in, 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 in was that a part of that whole sea change you were kind of going through and, and, and that you were aware of, 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 of your advocacy of what you were doing at that time? Is that... Yeah, well, I think, you know, that girl came right out of my philosophy, a girl who didn't mm-hmm. want to get married. No, no girl had ever said on television, I don't want to get married. No. So there she was. She moved out of her parents' house. Her parents wanted her to get married. She graduated from college as I had. She moved out of her house as I had. And she didn't want to get married as I didn't want to get married. That was pretty much, and and fighting the the system that her parents wanted her to become a part of. So there were a lot of, it was funny and all that, there were a lot of battles between the father and the daughter about her getting married and about her uh, settling down and not living on her own and and not losing her virginity and all the things that people worried about in in those days. And, um... And it spoke, you know, the show was only on five years, and from 1966 to 1971. You'd think the show had been on for 25 years. People still come up to me and say, oh, I love that show where you said this, where you did that. It made a tremendous impact because it was the first one. As our creator, Bill Persky, said, that girl threw the hand grenade into the bunker, and everybody else came through that hole. And that is really, truly what happened. Well, I love the we, story we, you tell when you went to visit Bill Persky and he had had his neck spasms. <laughs> yes, yes. And I, I absolutely roared with laughter when you described <laughs> about how, I guess you're a pacer. Are you still a pacer? Yeah, I am. And I am. You were pacing around <laughs> and, and, 
uh, that he was trying to follow you with his eyes, but every time he moved his neck or his head, he right. would have tremendous pain. Yeah, and, it, and then later was... on, you actually, I guess, had sympathy pages in your neck when it happened to you. And you right, ended up right, right. It was funny. Yeah, it was. It's true. We were, well, first of all, Bill and I were both such obsessives. The fact that I would even go to his hospital room where he was in traction, and the fact that he'd even <laughs> let me come and have a meeting about a script while he was in that kind of pain with one of those weights holding him down. I mean, it was really terrible. And that's why I wrote about it, because it's so funny. It's so funny that I, I think I call that chapter obsessive. Well, you do, and you said most comedians or most stand-up comedians particularly were obsessive about everything because they everything. had to get it perfectly right and, and be judged immediately by the audience response. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it is so totally true. Broadway's very much like that, too. Oh, it very much is. It's it's razor-perfect. It's razor-perfect. And it's a, it's, a, it's a thrill of an art. It really is. It takes everybody on stage. You know, it's, Even though I may say the line that gets the laugh, it takes everybody on stage to make that laugh work. Everybody has to be doing, making, looking, looking the right way, listening the right way, maybe even, even looking like, oh my God, what'd she say? Whatever it is, there's a, there's a, it's an, it's an ensemble laugh, every laugh. And the great teams know that, Nichols and May and George Burns and Gracie Allen and all that. They all know that it's two people. Two people make it laugh, make well, it I loved, funny. I loved in your book, um, you, you interview a lot of the, uh, great comedians of our time, and you quote Alan Alda, and you say, he says, I think it's good for people to laugh together, which is why I always recommend to actors that they laugh with one another an hour before a show, because then they'll be vulnerable and open up to each other. You can't stay guarded while you're laughing. You That's can't right. be in your own world when you're on stage. Right, exactly. I found that just incredible, because the vulnerability is really what's so perfect about that trade. Uh, yes, it, you know, you you, and that's why you always reference death, and you reference, you know, your father would say, you know, whether you live or die, you know, right. and 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 it I really died on with... stage last night, or I killed them. Somebody was always dying or being killed, yeah. and <laughs> but Alan Alda is a perfect example of a of a man who knows how to be a part of a group, part of a community, part of an ensemble of players, and and uh, that, I, I I put those quotes in because they really were. It really are what it what it's all about. And if you if you work with somebody who's not like that, and I have, and will don't remain nameless, but somebody who's just out for themselves and and, and isn't helping you and uh, is hogging everything for themselves, the, the the work is never as good. Nobody the the whole thing isn't as good as it could have been, and everybody else's work is thwarted. So it's it's not a pleasing experience. In the play that I'm working in now, everybody's really solid. You have a great very writer good. right now. I mean, she. You know, we've. I've, I've obviously followed Elaine May's work for forever, and yeah. uh, back to even when she was in. Um, oh God, uh, with Walter Matthau and the. And the oh, the New Leaf. Yes, and yeah. um, uh, your play is called Relatively Speaking, which is at yes. the Brooks Atkinson Theater in New York, and right. it's comprised of three one-act comedies written by Ethan Cohen, Elaine May, and Woody Allen, and directed by John Turturro. And, and I'm in the Elaine May one. Right, and yours yeah. is in Elaine May's, which is called George is Dead. Right. Um, you're you're on stage every day, right? Eight eight shows. A oh week. yeah, oh definitely. Every um, every eight eight shows a week: two Wednesday, two Saturday, and one Sunday, and every night but Monday. How would you describe your character? Uh, I'd rather have you do it than me, because I obviously find it fascinating. You're playing a blonde woman in denial. Right, uh, I'm playing a blonde woman in denial who's completely helpless. Completely clueless and um, and is 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 
Well, the name of the play, of Elaine's play, is called George is Dead. And so the first line in the play, I come on stage and say to this friend that I, whose house I come to, George is dead. I've just found out he died in a skiing accident. In the hands of any other writer, that's a tragedy. In the hands of Elaine May, it's a hilarious play. Because this woman just can't, she can't deal with it. So she's all over the place talking about a million other things. But what's great is by the end of the play, she has made the gone to the other phase, which is acceptance. And that's what makes it such a good play. Because it's funny. She's in denial. We all laugh at it. We all know what that's like. We know what she's running away from. But by the end of the play, she accepts it. And it makes everybody cry because we've all been there. You know, there was a, you may remember this scene, but there was a great scene in Steel Magnolias with Shirley MacLaine and Julia Roberts. And I forget who else was in it, but it was at the cemetery. And they're burying a friend. And somehow somebody says, I think it was probably Shirley MacLaine, says something so completely inappropriate. And they're all crying and laughing at the same time, which right. to me is really the ultimate thing. If you can evoke that type of emotion of laughter and, and of tears. Right. Well, when you're you, crying, you know, when you're emotional, you're, you're so close to laughter anyway. And the same with laughing. I mean, sometimes you can laugh till you cry. You know, they, they really are, those emotions are so close to each other. Because there they, they are, they are emotions in which we surrender ourselves to them. You surrender yourself to laughter. You don't. You can't control it. And you do why the do same you, with why? your with crying. You know, you you can't make yourself cry. You, you cry out of what's happening to you. Why do you think so many people have such problems surrendering? Because I I really feel in our society, and I don't know that it's necessarily today more men than women, but whatever. You know, uh, it, it just seems like we have trouble getting in touch with that type of. Well, it's scary to surrender. It's scary to be vulnerable. Yeah. It's scary to love somebody. When my father died and I was crying and crying and, oh, gosh, after a couple of months of still grieving, I went to this psychiatrist and I said, is something wrong with me? I can't get over this. I'm still crying about my dad. I, what, what, what is this? And he said, you're the uh, adoring daughter of, of a beloved father. He said, this is absolutely appropriate. He said, this is the reason why people are afraid to love. He said, because the other side of loving is loss. And some people are very smart about that. They say, they say emotionally to themselves, I'm not going to love something that I could lose. I have a friend who won't have a dog for that reason. She said, I don't want to have a dog that's going to die. So she's afraid even to love a dog. So there are people who just are afraid to surrender to love because... You, it, you can lose love. Somebody can die. Somebody can leave you. All kinds of things can happen. Do you think but a lot of do... it has to do, too? I know uh, um, in reading the book, uh, you and I both lost our fathers unexpectedly, quickly to heart failure. And mm -hmm. mine, mine came out of the clear blue. And and I remember I, I went through a very difficult time for yes. probably a week where I cried because I, I didn't feel there was closure, and I didn't feel a lot of things. Exactly. I mean, I, that, and I wanted that so badly to have right. that back, um, and I couldn't. Um, right. Th th is that sort of what happened with you? Well, yes, because too? it was so sudden. Mm -hmm. uh, he had just been at St. Jude two days before on February 4th for the anniversary of St. Jude, the 29th anniversary. And then he called when he got back. He was on, his, he was on a book tour. And he was, his book was in the, on the bestseller list. He was happy. He was whistling. The, the, I, later, when I tried to piece together what had happened that night, the housekeeper said, oh, we had a big meal. He was happy. He was unpacking his bag. 
got into bed about 10.30, woke up about, got out of bed around 1.30 in the morning and went in the other room and died. I mean, it was a shock. Nobody knew anything about it. So uh, it just took us all by, by, you know, more than surprise. It absolutely, it was as if somebody hit you in the chest with a plank. And, and was it George uh, Burns who came into the house? Was that who oh, it was? Oh, he came into the restaurant, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. grabbed your well, mom. Well, my mother was uh, as, as inconsolable as I was. My mother, of course, was a thousand times more inconsolable. Right. And uh, they'd been married 55 years, and she hadn't laughed in months. And we were at a graduation celebration for two of the grandchildren, <clears throat> and George Burns walked into the restaurant. It was the Hillcrest Country Club where my dad always went and all the comics mm-hmm. always went. And he walked in and he went over to my mother, who was sitting there, you know, absolutely solid and sad. And he walked over to her and said, hey, Rosie, I hear you're single again. <laughs> and all of us just went, oh, my God, I couldn't even look. I thought my mother would have fainted. And I looked at her and she threw her head back and roared. And I thought, wow, what a bold thing to do. You know, I mean, of course, it had been a couple of months, but still we were treating my mother like glass. We were afraid to say my father's name in front of her. We didn't know what to do with her. She was just a bundle of sadness, and he broke that for her. Now, but a lot of people would have said that was inappropriate, but, of course, it was probably, in his way, brilliant because it was the one thing that probably shook her up. I mean, shook her out of work. Well, not only that, my mother had a great sense of humor. She was married to a comedian. I mean, she she was not a woman who was foreign to laughter, so she had a great sense of humor herself. She loved to tell jokes. She told jokes about herself. In order to get a laugh, if she had to make herself look stupid, she didn't mind. She just loved getting the laugh. So our whole family was pretty much into telling jokes and and being the funny one. So when George did that, I mean, it was truly funny. I mean, you laughed when I told it to you, and everybody laughs when they read it. But there's Uh, something else there that's very endearing. He was really trying to help her heal. I sat with the book last night. I was up late just going through it again and reading it and I was I was laughing especially about the some of the some of the stuff in the book like the parakeet story and the oh, know, that's it, great. It, it it was just classic it was great I I want to ask you about um about St. Jude for a second I, I read and and I'm sure you've been asked this a thousand times the story about really the promise that your father made well, I guess over 70 or a long time ago uh, yeah. And he was a struggling entertainer, and he attended a mass in a Detroit church. And can you talk a little bit about that? Because I'm curious why Memphis, why children, how this all came about for those. Well, well, who don't first know. of all, he made a promise to Saint Jude that Saint Jude would just give him a sign in life that he was going in the right direction. My father was terrified that he wouldn't be able to support his family because he wasn't making any money. They had left left Detroit, moved to Chicago, and he wasn't doing as well as he thought he was going to do. I was about to be born. And he needed $50 to get me and my mother out of the hospital. And he didn't have it. He had $10. And, um, you know, it's hard to believe that somebody only has $10, but that's what he had. And he went to the church that day, and the sermon was on St. Jude, patron of the hopeless causes. And he said to St. Jude, I'm hopeless. I have a baby about to be born. I don't. I have $10. I need $50. To tell you the truth, I need about $70. So he took $7 of his 10 put it in the collection basket, and said to St. Jude, please give me a sign that I'm going in the right direction. I need ten times this. And the next morning was a Monday. He was uh, got a call to play a singing toothbrush on the radio for $75. That was his first sign. And though my father was not a religious guy, he was a man of faith, and he started to 
get these signs that he was going in the right direction. He promised St. Jude, if you help me find my way in life, someday I will build you a shrine. And so he got so successful that he decided he wanted to do something bigger than a little shrine on the side of the church, which is what he had originally thought about. And he thought the thing that really affected him the most in his life was the fact that children died when he was a kid, that little friends of his died from these influenzas and pneumonias and rodent bites and so forth, as I said earlier. And so he uh, started to think, that's what I want to do. I want to build a hospital for kids with hopeless diseases and so that all kids can come, whether religion or race or even an ability to pay. Every kid gets the same first-class care. And then he read about a little black kid, eight-year-old boy in uh, Mississippi, who was on his bike and was hit by a car. And because none of the, no emergency room would take him, uh, the, it was a white man who hit him, and the white man tried to get him into a, an emergency room. And no emergency room in Mississippi would take this black child, and the kid died. And my father read that clipping, and he carried it in his wallet for years. And when it came time to decide where the hospital would be built, and he'd been advised to put it in Boston or St. Louis, someplace where there were a lot of wonderful medical institutions and universities, he... Uh, he said, no, I'm putting it in the south. I want to put it in the south. I want to put it right smack in the middle, which is where Memphis is. That's why FedEx is there. It's a hub of the country. And um, he went to this cardinal friend of his, Cardinal Stritch of Chicago, and he said, I want to put my hospital in the south, and I need your help. Just I want, you know, I'm going to call it St. Jude. I just want you to give me some kind of imprimatur that it's okay to call it that. He said, yes, he said, and if you're going to put it in the South, put it in Memphis. And Daddy said, why Memphis? And he said, because I, I come from Memphis. i got a lot of people I know there. And Daddy went there and met the people, and that's why St. Jude's in Memphis. Wow. Well, I, I quite have... Quite a story. I have, it, number one, it's quite a story. In fact, uh, the um, uh, I have a number of... Uh, I have a particular family member, a sister-in-law, uh, Jenny, who actually hosts a family who has a child there now. Uh, they live in Memphis, and uh, oh. my brother's involved in the Supreme Court there. And um, th- this, is, this is, I'm sure she's listening to the show, uh, uh, this is to them one of the most important things in their life. Uh, sure. You know, to have the family, they spend the time with the family. Uh, how does it all work? Because I, I think the, the work that, it, that you do there is so special. And I want everybody, you know, this show goes all over the world. So basically we have great sponsors and great people. I want them to know everything about it. You know, Belda Bear is very involved in Maxine and I. And I I want to be able to, at least on this show, commit to you that I will bring a ton of my football players that I represent and other people to help in any way we can. But I'd love for you to, in your own words, kind of tell how it works. Because I know you don't have unlimited beds, and I know that you're open to – Anybody, and and how does that work? How does it, because your operating budget must be unbelievable. Well, it's uh, $1.7 million a day wow. uh, is the operating budget. Uh, I think what's important to know about St. Jude, first of all, is that it's this unique institution where it's a research and treatment center under one roof. So every child that comes to St. Jude has a scientist and a doctor working on their case so that they're 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 getting the up-to-the-minute uh pioneering research to help this child get better. So we, we know that we have to have the smartest research, and we know we have to have the best kind of treatment, the best kind of first-class care. Those two things have to go hand-in-hand in, hand in order to really cure these children of these hopeless diseases. 
The other thing that's important to know is that though though we treat 280 kids a day at St. Jude, um, uh, we're also treating children all over the country that aren't even at St. Jude. First of all, children come from every community in the country to St. Jude. But then we also do about 200 consults a week, our doctors do, with doctors around the country who are treating children to give them our protocols and to help them use what we we have. And we also have uh, uh, two websites that also speak uh, just to doctors and healthcare workers to help them uh, use our protocols. So my father had promised that we, we, we would freely and immediately share all of our scientific breakthroughs. When he made that promise in 1962, there wasn't an Internet. Now that there's an Internet, he would be surprised at how quickly we can disseminate that information. Yeah, your reach has just grown immensely. It's, a, it's with, amazing. With I mean, it goes all over the world. And, you know, and you it goes won, to China uh, and Russia and, and everywhere. And so your researchers win the Nobel Prize uh, yes, on leukemia Dr. research? Dr. Peter Doherty, who won the prize for his uh, discoveries of what the T-cells do. And as you know, the T-cells are the center of the immune system, so it's a pretty big discovery. Uh, I, I, lost, I lost my mother to leukemia, so I understand Oh, that. wow. Oh, wow. That's, I'm so sorry to hear that. Um, um, how many years ago? Uh, three years ago. Oh, wow. And, uh, and uh, she was actually my stepmother because my first mother died of, of a brain tumor when I was very young. So uh, I... I, all I can say is that it's that type of work that I believe is really what it's all about, and 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 it kind of leads me to a to a very special question about you, which is why I was so uh, unbelievably honored to have you uh, as a guest. You know, a lot of people talk, a lot of celebrities, particularly, and and I represent a lot of uh, athletes and and entertainers and different businesses we have. They get involved in charity work and they kind of check it off their list. You're very different. Uh, I read the part about how you picked up the legacy, and it wasn't something that really your dad expected the, you know, you and your sister and brother to do. But when you got there and you saw them celebrating the, the last day of chemo party, you know, for the child, and you realized the the bigness of what had been created and how special it was, you really took it and ran with it along with the other members of your family. Yes, my brother, um, and Tony, my sister, check. Terry, it's as well. It's not something yes. you check off. Pardon me? I said it's not something you just no, no, check no. on next uh, to the box. It, yeah. Well, first of all, we'd heard about it all our lives, our dad's passion. You know, we, we'd we always heard about it. We'd be sitting at the dinner table, and dad would get a call from St. Jude that some little boy named David wasn't doing well, and he'd come back to the to the table with tears in his eyes. Or he'd get up and find out that some little girl named Jenny was going to go home and be in her soccer game after all, and he'd come back with a big smile on his face. And we used to think, who are these children? Who are these other kids that mean so much to our daddy? And it took years and years and years for us to realize what was really happening at St. Jude. We saw the passion, but we weren't involved in the passion. When we started to help out, I would go pick up a check for my dad or be the honorary teen march, when I, teen uh, chair March chair when I was in that girl. And little by little, we did little things. But my dad made it clear that this was not our burden to carry. He said, this is my promise, and I will, when I'm gone, I put in a good institution together, a good foundation, and I don't want you kids to think this is your burden to carry, which is really psychologically quite brilliant, because (laughs) each of us came to it in our very own special way. And, um, and, and, And 
And, this, and the way that we came to it is the same reason that we stay with it, is because once you go down there and meet a parent and a child that have come there with terror in their eyes, they've just been told they're going to die in another hospital in L.A. or Boston or New York or some, you know, Chicago or wherever, and then they come to St. Jude where there might be some hope, and then I see the same family seven, eight months later, and the child is bald now, but he's in treatment, and he's doing well, and he's going to make it. And they're going to get to take their kid home. There's nothing like that. I don't care all the Emmys and everything else that people have given me. There is nothing like the thrill of seeing a kid who was going to die go home with their family. It's, a, it's beyond thrilling, beyond thrilling. And of all the things my father did for us, I think the fact that he didn't push us into it but allowed us to find our way to it, which I'm sure he knew we would. Um, uh, it's something I just treasure. I, I just think it's a great, great gift to give your children. Well, you said, you know, you learned from your father, and, and obviously he passed away in 1991. You said that you've learned that love endures, and, and even years later the love remains as before, and it doesn't diminish, and it doesn't divert, and endures intact. Uh, and, and really, you you have had such incredible um, uh, mentoring from having such a wonderful family. And I guess I would ask, you know, uh, how that can be passed on to our listeners, to people who are going through particularly tough times right now, uh, out of work. We we got an incredibly dysfunctional government. We got an incredibly dysfunctional. Set of set of things going on around us where you know we need to provide hope on a daily basis to so many people, and Absolutely. it's hard. And, and you do that at your hospital. You do that with your work that you do, and your advocacy. Uh, what what can you kind of advice can you give some of our listeners, especially the younger listeners that are listening? Well, I, I think to get outside of yourself. You know, I mean, you really have to notice. It's like what my dad said. You know, are you the kind of person that stops at a traffic accident or are you the kind that just drives by? Well, that's not just about traffic accidents. That's about people, other people who need something, kids who are sick, a guy who can't cross the street by himself, you know, a woman with a flat tire, uh, you know, a, 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 an elderly person who, who you know, could use of being cheered up or read to in a nursing home. There's all of these people that are are in need, and you can go through life never thinking about them, never noticing them. Or if you do notice them, not pay attention to it. Or you can be the person that notices the traffic accident metaphorically and not just drive by. And I think that there's a great reward in doing something for somebody other than yourself. My father proved that with his life, and I'm learning it in my life, that there is a great reward. I mean, I love being on stage as an actor. I love making people laugh. Believe me, any award I get, I am very grateful for, and it thrills me to the bone. But, boy, there's something else. There's some other part of your soul that gets rewarded when you do something for somebody that has nothing to do with you. Well, I first of all, on behalf of, of so many people that, that whose hearts and souls you've touched, I want to thank you. I, I, we got a couple minutes left. Uh, I do want to tell you that last night we saw your husband, Phil Donahue, on Piers Morgan, and we saw the incredible clip from 1977. Oh, yeah. So I'm going to embarrass you a little bit and ask you, uh, was it love at first sight at that moment? Uh, and what advice could you offer to so many people who are in a marriage and partnership? Because it sure looks like you guys are making it work as a great team. 
Thanks. Yeah, I, I think it was love at first sight. Uh, we went together for three years because, as, as I said, I never wanted to be married. Um, but it was love at first sight, that's for sure. We we flirted terribly on that show. It was really kind of funny. But um, I think what make we've been married 31 years, and and I think what makes our marriage good and strong kind of has really sort of come home to me as I've been in this play. I'm doing a play. I'm loving it. It's my dream to be on Broadway and working in a comedy. And my husband is comes a couple times a week, takes me to dinner, stands in the back, watches me, brings other friends to see it. He's completely supportive and wanting me to have what I want. And I think we do that for our children. We want our children to have everything that we that they want. We'll do anything. We'll we'll sell our house. We'll do anything to give our children the education they want, whatever they want. We we don't do that for our spouses. And I think if we if we kind of treated our spouses a little bit more the way we treat our children by wanting them to have everything they want as well, I think we'd have better marriages. And I think that that's one of the things I do believe that is something that Phil and I do for each other. We want each other to have what we want. Well, we want uh, make- uh, Max and Clark has never given me bad advice, and, <laughs> and I can tell you in closing that you are a remarkable human being, a remarkable person. I can't wait till I have the opportunity to meet you in person. And, thank you. And I mean that. Uh, you, you, uh, I, I want to thank you so much, Marla Thomas, for sharing your journey with us. Uh, we're appreciative because of the amount of time you spend on so many different things. We wish you great fortune in, in your work with Relatively Speaking, your new movie, LOL, with Demi Moore and Miley Cyrus that will be coming out. I want to thank our listeners of A Current Life on Voice America Variety Channel, our sponsors, Smart Water and Wild Things Gear and Mall Space at, uh, Network. And, and again, Marlo, thank you for making the time. Uh, you are a very special person. Thank, thank you. you de- thank you so much. I so enjoyed it. You're a very good interviewer, by the way. I don't usually interview, enjoy interviews. And when I heard it was going to be over 40 minutes, I thought, oh, my God, what am I going <laughs> to talk about for 40 minutes? But well, it's been a I, pleasure. I've really I will enjoyed say it. This. You, you've made it a, 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 a real pleasure. And, and I want to tell our listeners, until next time, I wish each and every one of you a journey filled with hope and inspiration and success. And All my best to you, Marla. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. God bless. Bye-bye. God bless. Thanks again for joining us for A Current Life on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please tune in to another great program with your host, Jimmy Gould, next Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time. We'll see you next week.